Good morning, church. Please turn with me to Psalms 139. Psalms 139. We're going to, to find our sermon from this text this morning. Uh, Psalms 139 and let's read it to the choir master a psalm of David O Lord you have searched me and known me you know when I sit down and when I rise up you discern my thoughts from afar you searched out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, in your book were written, every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and you are not loath those who rise up against you. I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. Brothers and sisters, my, the title of my sermon this morning is known by God, known by God. I want us to see convictions that must be adopted by people who truly know God and people who truly realize that they are known by God. And we're going to look at these five convictions that God knows me and he made me to know him, that God is always with me and he will hold me fast, and that God made me and I belong to him, and knowing God means hating evil, and finally that 
God knows me better than I know myself, and I want him to reveal my sin to me. We were made to know God. The aim that we should set for ourselves must be to know God. In, in John chapter 17, Jesus speaks this way and he says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The knowledge of God is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, bringing more satisfaction, more delight, and more contentment than anything else. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23, he says, This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, or the strong man boast in his strength, or the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me. Uh, an author, A.W. Tozer, writes this. He says, the decline of the knowledge of the holy has brought on our troubles. A rediscovery of the majesty of God will go a long way to curing them. It is impossible to keep up our moral practices sound or our inward attitudes right when our idea of God is erroneous or inadequate. If we would bring back spiritual power in our lives, we must begin to think of God the way he truly is, as the Bible has revealed. My prayer for you this morning is that you would know God as he truly is. Not as we want him to be, not as we imagine him to be, but as the Bible describes him to be. So, this morning, brothers and sisters, I want us to see five convictions that must be adopted by a person who truly knows God so that we can live lives that God intended for us. Five convictions that must be adopted by a person who truly knows God and realizes that they are known by God so that we may live lives that God intended for us. First, God knows me, and he made me to know him. Look at verse 1 to 6. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, you descend my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Brothers and sisters, the Bible teaches consistently that God knows everything. In Psalm 147 verse 5, it says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power, and his understanding is beyond measure. We see in the Bible that God's understanding is limitless. God knows everything. God knows everything instantly, effortlessly, and perfectly. God knows everything in the past, in the present, and in the future. God knows everything physical, spiritual, seen, or unseen. God knows things known, unknown, and yet to be known. 
God knows all atoms, all cells, all minute details. See, in other words, there is nothing that God doesn't know. God knows everything. Stephen Chanock, one theologian, puts it this way. He says, God knows all things, whether they be possible, past, present, or future. Whether they be things that he can do, but he will never do, or things he has done, but do not exist now. God knows things that are now in the process. God knows things that are not existing at the moment, which are waiting for their proper causes. His understanding is infinite. He knows all things whatsoever can be known. God knows everything instantly, effortlessly, all at the same time, past, present, future. Listen to what uh, another theologian, Hemen Bavink, says. He says, God knows all things in and of himself. For that reason, his knowledge is undivided, unchangeable, and eternal. He knows all things instantaneously, simultaneously, from all eternity. See, our knowledge works on building blocks. See, that's why uh, you go to grade 1, grade 2, grade 3, all the way to grade 12, where they teach you building blocks. When you do uh, a subject in grade 12, you do it at a different level from when you did it in grade 7 and when you did it in grade 1. It's because they were giving you building blocks, but God doesn't need building blocks. God knows everything instantly, perfectly, immediately, all at once, and past, present, and future. God does not learn new things. God knows tomorrow. See, God knows everything. All things are eternally present in his mind's eye. Isaiah 44, 44 verse 7. Who is like me? This is God. He says, who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. God brings out this charge. He says, is there anyone like me? Let them come and tell us what is happening tomorrow. And brethren, even with that being said, I want you to observe what thrills the psalmist. What thrills the psalmist is that God knows him personally. This very God who knows all things past, present, and future. This very God who knows all things instantly, effortlessly, and perfectly. This very God who knows all things known, unknown, and yet to be known. This God has an interest in me. David uses my and I in, in these six verses. He uses them 13 times. He uses this uh, personal pronoun and possessive pronoun uh, 13 times. You see, David marvels at, the, at God's objective universal macro-omniscience, but what catches his deep attention is God's individual personal knowledge of him. See, David is thrilled by this personal knowledge of God. He's exhilarated by the fact that God has an interest in him. He's electrified by this thought. This God truly knows me. God knows me, and he made me to know him. What does God know about me? Look at the verse 2 to 4. He knows what I do. 
He knows what I think. He knows what I say. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You see, he knows what I do. You descend my thoughts from afar. He knows what I think. You search out my path and my lying down. He knows what I do. You are acquainted with all my ways. You know what I say. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, oh Lord, you know it all together. And how much does God know about me? Verse 3, you are acquainted with all my ways. God knows everything about me. Now, how do you respond to this truth? How does it make you feel to know that God knows everything about you? He knows all your thoughts. He knows all your ways. He knows all your intentions. He knows all your actions, all your plans. That everything lies exposed before a holy God. That everything about you, your thoughts, your words, your actions, are bare before God. In Latin, they say, Quaram Dio, in the face of God. How does that make you feel? In all honesty, this should make all of us feel exposed, embarrassed, fearful, scared, and guilty. And let's observe and see how David responds to this fact that God knows everything about him. What is David's response? Look at the verse 5 and verse 6. He says, You hem me in behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such, this is David's response, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is hard, I cannot attain it. In other words, David says, This is too much. Too wonderful. I can't take it all in. See, to put this in other words, David is saying, I delight in the fact that God knows everything about me. I am comforted by the news that all of my life is exposed before a holy God. I find rest in that God is aware of all of my thoughts, my ways, my actions. I am confident in God even though he knows everything about me. What? How? How? Instead of being terrified and ashamed that the all-knowing God knows everything about him, he expresses a sense of peace, comfort, and awe. Instead of being horrified, he is in wonder and delight. And our question must be, what can make the psalmist to respond this way? Where does David get the confidence to respond like this? Isn't he a sinner like us? He is, but he knows God as a savior. This is a response of a man at peace with God. He knows God as a forgiver of sin. He knows God as a restorer of the wicked. He knows God as a refuge of those who are wayward. Even though he knows that God is aware of every wrong thought, every sinful word, every evil deed, he finds comfort in God because he knows God as a savior. God has made me and he made me to know him. God knows me and he made me to know him. Tim Keller once said something that explains this truth very well. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting, 
but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is a lot more like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness and fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. The idea here that the all-knowing God, the God who knows our wickedness, our sinfulness, and our fallenness, the God who knows our failures, our depravity, our sin, advances towards us in love. He rescues us, he restores us, he forgives us, and he calls us his own through Jesus Christ. And that is why we can rest and find comfort in the fact that he knows everything about us. He knows all of our sins because our sins have been forgiven by him. 1 John chapter 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. Our Lord Jesus Christ lived a perfect life we could not live. He died a death that we should have died. When we place our faith upon Christ for salvation and forgiveness, we are accepted by God and we can respond like David in verse 5 and 6. I like it in, in Zulu. It says, that's the last time you hear me say I like something in Zulu. <laughs> you hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Brothers and sisters, the omniscience of God can be a hedge for you and not a threat. The fact that God knows everything about you can be wonderful to you and not terrifying. The omniscience of God can be peace for you and not horror. And my question is, are you reconciled with God? Are you reconciled with God? Let us consider our second conviction of a person who truly knows God. God is always with me and he will hold me first. Let's look at verse 7 to verse 12. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I make, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. This section speaks about the omnipresence of God, that God is present everywhere at the same time, that God is not bound in any way. God is neither bound by time nor by space. You see, it's important to know that while God is present everywhere, he manifests his presence in different ways. So in heaven, the presence of God is a delight and comfort for saints. But in hell, the presence of God terrifies and torments 
sinners. This is why David makes these bold statements. He says, if you go to heaven, you'll find him there. If you go to hell, you'll find him there. If you go to the uttermost part of the sea, you'll find him there. God is there. The, 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 the deepest part of the sea that is known to scientists today is called the Mariana Trench. And it's about 10 kilometers below sea level. And, and there's, there's deep darkness there. There's only uh, a small number of creatures that can exist there. The, the atmospheric pressure is 10 times what we have here on Earth. So, so human beings would not survive there. You'd actually, if you'd get in a vessel uh, that is not fortified, you'll, you'll explode halfway there before you get to the Mariana Trench. That's, that, that's how much pressure there is there. And he says here, if you go to the uttermost parts of the sea, God is there. Even the darkness is not dark with God. See, there is no place where God is out of his depths. There is no place where God is shut out. There is no area where God does not have his A-game. God is always having home ground advantage. Do you realize that God is too infinite for our intellect, too immense for our imagination, too complex for our comprehension? You see, the doctrine of the omnipresence of God means that God is highly exalted amongst all creatures, above all creatures. God is unlike us. He's not confined. He's unlike us. He's not constrained. How does David respond to this truth? Look at verse 10. It says, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day for darkness is as light with you. See, David's response is that he has total trust and confidence in God. Listen to what he says. God, wherever I go, God, whatever I experience, God, whatever circumstance I may face, I know that you are always there. Even there, your hand shall lead me. It's as if David corrects himself, says, and your right hand shall hold me. Not just your hand, you see. Your right hand shall hold me. Do you get the idea? God is always with me. And he will hold me fast. But this promise is only for those who have put their faith in him. Look at verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. See, over and over in the Psalms, darkness is used as a picture of difficulty, a picture of trials, a, difficulty, a picture here of unbearable circumstances. See, David is expressing his total surrender to God. He mentions here that even through moments of despair, Moments of difficulty and trial, he will stay put, he will stay trusty in God. In Psalm 88, there at the end of that psalm, the psalmist expresses the, uh, a sense of deep depression and he says, Darkness is my only friend. 
But David here speaks with a different note. He says, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even darkness is not dark to you. He's expressing here his total surrender, his total dependence upon God, that the night is as bright as the day. Darkness is as light with you. See, brothers and sisters, David moves from just a technical understanding of this truth to a devotional response. You see, David here, he sets an example for us that our devotion must be informed by deep theology and our theology must lead to deep devotion. We must avoid non-theological devotion and we must avoid non-devotional theology. Our theology must always move us to praise and doxology. May this truth be your anchor in trials, in hardships, in sorrows, in pain, in loss, in bereavement, in fears, in struggles with sin, in depression, in hopelessness. Remember, God is always with me and he will hold me fast. Let us consider our third conviction of a person who truly knows God. God made me and I belong to him. Let's look at verse 13 to 16. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. You see, brothers and sisters, here David describes the workings of God in the womb. See, we cannot talk about knowing God without mentioning the dignity of man. First, mankind has been created in God's image. And second, we see God's delicate workings in the development of a human in the womb. David is bringing to our attention here that there is something peculiar, there is something special in the creation of man. And there must be something peculiar and special in the way that man relates with God. You see, to remember that you are fearfully and wonderfully made is to remember that you are distinct from all creation. You've been made to enjoy God. You've been made to have fellowship with God. You've been made to belong to God. Listen to how David describes this making, this, this uh, act of God in the making of man in the womb. He says, you, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. He says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He says, God, wonderful are your works. He says, I was intricately woven in the depths. You see, in, uh, in the depths of the earth, that's a picture of the womb. Uh, David here, he's describing this, that, that when I was growing in my mother's womb, it was God intricately woving me in my mother's womb. You see, David here describes divine activity and not mere biological processes. He's describing here how, how special man is to God. That he describes the design of man with these careful descriptions. Careful 
craftsmanship, delicate artistry, skillful technique, masterful workmanship. You know me inside and out. You know every bone in my body. You know exactly how I was made bit by bit, how I was sculpted from nothing into something God owns us. The powerful, omnipotent God made us and owns us and we belong to him. And brethren, we cannot move on here without addressing the issue of unborn children in the womb. According to these verses, we must conclude that abortion is an evil atrocity. According to these verses, we have a responsibility to protect, to protect the baby in the womb. We must push against the culture and the norm today that thinks little about the baby in the womb. We need to push back against the culture and speak the truth of God's word. That the child in the body of the mother is fearfully and wonderfully made deserving of dignity made in the image of God from conception. And David concludes this section by stating the sovereignty of God. It says, your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that are formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Look at verse 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. Fearfully and wonderfully made and safe in the hands of a sovereign God. Now let's consider our fourth conviction. Knowing God means hating evil. Look at verse 19 to 22. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. This one, you, you don't see these words uh, in Christian bookshops, on t-shirts, and on mugs. Eh? These ones don't appear there. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? Look at verse 22. I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. It feels like this section doesn't belong. This someone's coming up nicely. And then what's happening now? Brothers and sisters, here David is speaking about the righteousness of God. And he brings it in a different aspect. See, David gives us, he gives us insights into the holiness of God. The holiness of God is the attribute that speaks about the purity of God. You see, to say that God is holy, we mean that what God does is always right, and what God says is always true, and that God never does anything wrong. One theologian puts it this way, he says, holiness is the character of God without which his wisdom would be mere show off. His justice would be cruelty. His sovereignty would be tyranny. And his mercy would be foolish pity. 
You see, this means that if God was not holy, we would have reason to be suspicious of his wisdom, of his justice, of his sovereignty, and of his mercy. Because a God who's not holy would abuse those other attributes. But he is a holy God. And a person who is holy can be our comfort and our rest. You see, because God is holy, we can find comfort and rest in all his attributes. Listen to how this passage in Exodus puts it. Exodus 15, 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Stephen Chanock, I've spoken about this theologian. He says, God's holiness is his beauty. Power is his hand and arm. Omniscience is his eye. Mercy is his affections. Eternity is his age. And his holiness is his beauty. Now, let us look back at these verses. It says here, verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God, O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. See, in this section, we see how to respond to God's righteousness. The Bible gives us a guide on how to respond to God's holiness. God's holiness must drive us to hatred for sin. Our love towards a righteous God is seen by our hatred towards evil and those who do evil. If we love, we must hate what opposes our love. If we love God, we must hate those who oppose him. We live in such a culture that is not sensitive to the holiness of God. To speak about hatred for evil is shocking to many. Be honest, are you not shocked by these words? Well, let me remind you, let me remind you that the Bible does not make any distinction between sin and a sinner. There is no such thing in the Bible as God hates the sin but loves the sinner. In Psalm 11, verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. This distinction has been created by people who know little about the Bible. There is no distinction between sin and the sinner, between evil and the evildoer. Why does David hate the evildoer? Because the evildoer opposes God. The evildoer wants to dethrone God and the evildoer wants to be God. Why would we tolerate anything like this? Look at the sins of the wicked. They are men of blood. They murder and take life. They speak against God with malicious intent. They take God's name in vain. They raise up against God and God's people. David says we must be opposed to this. We must stand up against this evil. We cannot look away. We cannot ignore this. 
What does it mean to hate evil? It means we must be concerned about God's glory more than anything else in the world. It means when it's in our power, we must do something within the legal bounds to fight injustice, abuse, exploitation, abortion, and everything that opposes God's standards. It means we must not take power into our own hands. It is not our job to punish sinners. It means we must call sin what God calls sin. It means we must distance ourselves from those who arrogantly sin against God. It means we must warn people about God's impending judgment upon sin. It means we must preach the message of mercy, of grace, and forgiveness to sinners. Hating God means hating evil. Do you hate evil? Do you hate sin? Let us take now our final consideration. What are the convictions of a person who truly knows God? How must we respond to the perfections of God's attributes, God's perfections? How must we respond to the character of God? We must say, God knows me better than I know myself, and I want him to reveal my sin to me. Look at verse 23 to verse 24. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If God knows everything, why do I ask him to search me? What is this all about? And the answer is plain. God knows me better than I know myself and I want him to reveal my sin to me. See, I'm not asking God to gain new knowledge about me. I'm asking him to reveal that knowledge to me. This is how we must pray. God, are there any areas in my life where I make light of your omniscience? God, are there areas in my life where I do not recognize your omnipotence? God, are there areas in my life where I don't understand your omnipresence? God, do I resemble your righteousness and holiness to the world? God, are there areas in my life where I'm tolerating sin and I'm in cahoots with sinners? God, are there areas in my life where there is no distinction between me and evildoers? Please help me to see those areas and lead me in the right path. Are you committed to change when your sin is revealed to you? Are you committed to put God's word first above your feelings, above your culture, above your traditions, above your personality, above your habits, and above what you consider to be normal? Brothers and sisters, we are known by God, and we have been made to know God, and therefore we must be humble, we must be comforted, we must be encouraged, and we must be prayerful. Amen.